0: Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I have back with me today, Dr. Jillian Isaac, who... Everyone Knows is a frequent superstar guest on ACRAC for the Keyword Series, and we're back with yet another installment. And today we're going to talk about volatile anesthetic pharmacology, and Jillian will explain exactly how the ABA breaks this down, but that is what we're going to cover today. It's just one topic because it will take us uh, the length of a usual two topics, and I am going to let Jillian explain some more and say welcome back to the show, Dr. Isaac.
1: Oh, thanks. It's good to be back. Yeah. so today I was looking at the pharmacology section of the outline and we've done a fair amount of pharmacology we've done a lot of our indu- induction drugs we've done barbiturates and propofol ketamine succinylcholine we've done a bunch of drugs so far but we haven't really done a lot of the volatiles and it's interesting the way the ABA breaks up the outline so if you look at page 7 of the outline which is the first 24 pages, I think, are basic. So under the basic topics, under pharmacology, and there's four pages just for pharmacology, um, they have what they want you to know pharmacology-wise for volatile anesthetics. Um, Interestingly enough, Under physics is where they talk about uptake and distribution of inhalational agents, and there are a lot of questions that stem from that topic alone, but that's under physics and not actually under pharmacology. So today we're going to focus on pharmacology as outlined by the ABA. So the things that the ABA wants you to know if you look at the outline is they want you to know about physical properties. So that means vapor pressure and blood gas partition coefficients, mechanism of action, and then a lot of effects right and this is common for all the drugs, no matter if you're looking at an IV drug uh, induction agent and analgesic versus uh, uh, Hypnotic versus a sedative they want you know the effects on the organ system so effects on the CNS the cardiovascular system, respiration, neuromuscular function, renal function, hepatic function, uh, hematologic, and immune systems. And that's common to all the drugs. So you, you kind of have to go into this thinking the volatile anesthetics like any other drug out there in terms of their pharmacology. And then also biotransformation and toxicity. Minimum alveolar concentration, which for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to refer to as MAC. So it's not MAC and like sedation, it's MAC, like a MAC value, and then factors that affect MAC. And then trace concentrations, this is some questions that have been coming up in the past few years, what the OSHA outlines are for like how much volatile can be contaminating an operating room. And then the other big topic is like comparative pharmacodynamics. So comparing like dust fluorine to ice fluorine to c-bluorine. Um, I do apologize ahead of time. Some of my questions are a little bit old. So you may see some halothane and enflurane questions come up. I am under the impression that those questions have Almost always been phased out now of the basic and advanced exam. Even though we still talk about halothane and read about it, they aren't really testing it anymore.
0: So, yeah, probably the the concepts will hold true.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then. So those, that's the outline of what the ABA wants you to know. And then I try to go through and pull out what has actually been tested in the last 10 years on the ITE. So the two most heavily tested topics from that whole list is one of the physical properties. So vapor pressure and blood cat, blood gas partition coefficient. And that was tested in 2008, 2015, 18 and 20 and then factors that affect MAC value. That was tested in 2011, 2014, 2017, 2018. And then the third most heavily tested topic are the like effects on organ systems, like effect on respiration, on uh, cardiovascular system. You kind of average one a year in that. Um, And then compare it and contrast. The last I saw a compared contrast question was 2018. And then you'll, every now and again, you'll see questions about like the effects of volatile agents on neuromuscular blocking drugs, their mechanism of action, which I found very interesting because I don't know if we know for sure the mechanism of action. So I'm not quite sure that how they're asking that question. But um and then again, I talked about the trace concentrations in the OR and then the biotransformation and toxicity. It was tested back like in 09, but it's kind of come up again in more recent tests. So that's really what they're focusing on in terms of testing. Great. Yeah. So the first key point is vapor pressure. So in a closed container, molecules from a volatile liquid, they escape that liquid phase and they become a vapor. And those little gas molecules strike the wall of the container. And that is what is known as a vapor pressure. And it most is directly correlated with temperature. So if you increase temperature, you'll increase the ratio of gas to liquid molecules, and that will increase vapor pressure. And again, it's hard to do this because we're not in a vacuum and it's hard to do it. We're not talking about like, vaporizers, but that's its own separate like keyword question is vaporizers. So trying to do this just based on the way the board has has laid it out and the outline and just trying to keep with the concept of pharmacology. These are the type of questions that you might see just about vapor pressure. So the first question, and the only one that I actually found for vapor pressure, is the vapor pressure of a volatile anesthetic depends on A, temperature only, B, ambient pressure only, C, temperature and ambient pressure, D, pressure and volume of the system, E, none of the above.
0: Yeah. And so as you mentioned, it's temperature, A, is the answer. I think where people get confused is thinking that pressure also affects this. And the way I think you can think about it is it's like the pressure, the ambient pressure is kind of what's pressing in on the gas. It doesn't mean the gas isn't pressing back with the same pressure that it would be anyway. Just like if someone were circling you and squeezing, you could press out with whatever pressure you can press out with. If they squeezed less or more, you would still be able to push the same amount. And that's what the, that's how I think of that vapor pressure of the gas. So the ambient pressure doesn't affect it, but the temperature does.
1: Which leads us to a next key point, which is blood gas partition coefficient. And I think this is probably a trickier concept to grasp. But the way I explain it is that the blood gas partition coefficient, it describes how the gas will partition itself between two phases after, after equilibrium has been reached. So that's important, it's like after equilibrium. So for example, take n It has a blood gas partition coefficient of 1.7. So if the gas is in equilibrium, the concentration in the blood will be 1.7 times higher than that in the alveoli. So it's just it's the blood to gas ratio. So it makes sense that a gas with a higher blood gas coefficient Will require a higher uptake of gas into the blood and induction will be slower so as a general rule of thumb like a higher partition coefficient is a higher lipophilicity which is higher potency which is higher solubility and a higher solubility means that you're going to have need more anesthetic to be dissolved which is a slower onset again today we're just going to focus on the straight pharmacology i think the next podcast we do i'm going to do the other side of the volatiles which will be those factors that affect speed of induction. Um, But for today, again, we're just trying to stick with the pharmacology as this this, like any other drug. So a patient is anesthetized using an inhaled anesthetic with a blood gas partition coefficient of 13. Recovery time depends primarily on A, the oil gas solubility of the drug, B, cardiac output, C, tidal volume, D, duration of administration, E, MAC of the drug.
0: I think what they're getting at here, as you said, is that the that's a very high blood gas partition coefficient, which means it's a very, very soluble drug, which means it's going to take a while for onset because it's going to have to really get dissolved. And then the same thing would be true of offset is it's going to take a while. And the longer you have it going on, um, in other words, duration of administration, that's what's going to affect both onset and recovery.
1: Right. And they do talk about, I was reading this and I don't remember if it was Barish or Miller, but at some point, the longer you go with an anesthetic, the less these coefficients matter, right? So if you do desflurane for 10 hours versus sevoflurane versus isoflurane, you're going to build up this huge reservoir no matter what. And it's going to take a lot longer to wake up from those. So duration of administration does make a big difference, like five minutes of exposure versus three hours of exposure.
0: Although it's interesting. I, so I agree. Um, although I would say that probably the difference between DES and ISO would be magnified or DES and, you know, Enflurane over a long period of time, right? Because while you, even DES, which we think of as not building up much, will build up it some, up, right? but ISO will build up so much that I think those curves will really separate so yeah, that right. actually the benefit of DES would be magnified over a long period of time.
1: And we were all that CA1 where you didn't turn the agent off until like the last stitch was in. And then you sat in the room for like an hour and a half. Yeah, right. I've done that. All right. So the next question is a newly developed inhalational anesthetic has a blood gas partition coefficient of 0.2. Which of the following statements best describes this drug compared with isofluorine? So A, the MAC is lower. B, the difference between FA and FI during maintenance of anesthesia is greater. C, time to emergence is shorter. D, rapid induction requires greater overpressure. E, equilibrium in a circle system with the same flow of fresh gas is slower.
0: And so obviously to know this, you're going to have to have a feel for what the blood gas partition coefficient of isofluorine is. And or at least in general. So, I mean, if you know that it's higher than DES and CIVO and the DES and CIVO are somewhere around the 0. 0.4 to 0.67 range, then you know that's, that ISOs is more than that, which means this one at 0. 0.2 is super low, which that's means this is really, 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 really insoluble. And so time to emergence, just the opposite of what we used in the last question, time to emergence here is going to be much shorter than any of those other ones we talked about.
1: Right, and I actually really like these two questions because they aren't using a specific volatile anesthetic. It's more like a thought process and they want you to think through uh, the blood gas partition coefficient. All right, next one. So which of the following characteristics of inhaled anesthetics most closely correlates with recovery from inhaled anesthesia? A, blood gas partition coefficient, B, brain blood partition coefficient, C, fat blood partition coefficient, D, MAC.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, we've just been, of course, talking about the blood gas partition coefficient. So a okay. good rule of thumb is if you've been talking about something and a question comes up, <laughs> that's probably the answer. Yeah, right, probably. Um, we don't really talk much about brain blood or fat blood. Um, those have to do with different compartments and sort of how they're coming in and out of those. But ultimately, what matters for uh, both uh, induction and recovery is the blood gas partition coefficient. Uh, so that that's what it's going to be.
1: Okay, we just have a few more on this topic and hopefully it'll nail the uh, concept home. So which of the following is most closely associated with minimum alveolar concentration? So MAC, A, blood gas partition coefficient, B, oil gas partition coefficient, C, vapor pressure, D, brain blood partition coefficients.
0: So now actually we are just you know going back on everything i just said about if right. you're talking about something that's okay.
1: <laughs> i do that um, on purpose <laughs>
0: right right prove me wrong so you know what you and when you did your intro up front you said that the oil gas partition coefficient is going to give you a feel for potency and so mac is a measure of potency and so um most closely associated with MAC is going to be your oil gas partition coefficient. So this is different than recovery and induction. This is about just potency. And that is uh, going to be, be oil gas partition coefficient.
1: Right. And if I remember correctly, there's some, some correlation. It's like the Meyer Overton rule, right? The oil gas partition coefficient, kind of like mechanism of action
0: it may be, but I can't question. tell you that I remember what All that right. is. I <laughs> know.
1: Okay. Um, compared with other volatile inhalational anesthetics, desflurane has which of the following characteristics? A, equal potency to isoflurane. B, greater extent of biotransformation than mflorane, C, less airway irri- irritation than halothane. D, a lower blood gas solubility coefficient than enflurane. E, lower vapor pressure than isoflurane.
0: So we talked before about how DES is a very insoluble anesthetic, and so its blood gas uh, solubility coefficient is going to be low, and n though we don't use it much anymore, is, is like isoflurane in that it, is less, uh, th- that it is more soluble than desflurane, and so DES will have a lower blood gas solubility coefficient.
1: Right. And they do. And I couldn't find a question, which is crazy because it comes up again and again. But desflurane is the one that causes the most airway irritation. That's a really common question, even though I couldn't find one.
0: Yeah. And I I will say, because this is actually commonly misunderstood as came up actually the other day in the OR, is that desflurane is still... Bronchodilatory. So people think that because right. it causes airway irritation that to an awake patient, that it is not a bronchodilator. That's wrong. It's, I think of it as it's like it smells bad. So if you yeah. give something that smells bad to someone who's asleep, they don't care. And same thing with DES, right? If they're awake, they can't tolerate the inhaled induction with DES because it like smells bad and irritates their upper airways in that kind of, Oh, that smells bad way. But it, once they're asleep, it's has the same bronchodilation effect as SIVO or ISO.
1: Okay. So that leads us to key point three, which is there are many factors that will affect your MAC. So there are certain physiological and pathological states that can alter MAC. So for example, MAC will increase with hyperthermia and significant hypernatremia. But conversely, anemia, hypercarbia, hypoxia, hypothermia, hypotension, and pregnancy seem to decrease MAC. So duration of anesthesia, gender, height, and weight don't really affect MAC that much. Um, But certain medications will, like illicit drugs, Prior substance abuse can affect MAC value, Uh, and it depends if it's acute or chronic. So like acute use of amphetamines, cocaine, ephedrine, um, and chronic use of alcohol increase MAC, whereas administration like propofol, Atomidate, barbiturates, benzos, um, those all actually like decrease MAC. So there are a lot of different things that affect MAC value, super common test question. And a lot of it, I think you can kind of intuit. You don't necessarily have to memorize the list. You can kind of think about, okay, if someone's gotten you know, midazolam, they probably don't need as much volatile anesthetic. So a couple questions along that key point is which of the following factors lowers MAC for volatile anesthetics? A, a serum sodium of 151, B, red hair, C, body temperature, and D, acute ethanol ingestion.
0: And like you said, I think a lot of this you can think through, and certainly not the red hair, but definitely acute alcohol, uh, acute ethanol ingestion is going to put you closer to, either way I think about it, it's closer to already being asleep. And so uh, that- You're already halfway there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that will lower MAC. Um, And the other ones uh, should, those other three should all raise MAC.
1: Yeah. And they're actually, I did read a paper about 10 years ago that looks at the genetics of red hair and that genetic like sub I don't know what you call it, but they do actually require more anesthetic,
0: right? Yep. All
1: right. Another question in that arena, all of the following physiological states decrease Mac, except a anemia B hypercarbia C pregnancy D hyperthermia.
0: Yeah. And so this is one of those older, all the following, except you shouldn't see these anymore. Just if people um, find these hard, that's true. They are hard, but, um, what you you if you ever do see one you want to reframe it in your head so all of the following decrease mac except in other words let me find the ones that the one that does not the one that raises mac or doesn't well, we decrease same, it right? Right. so try to frame it that way and so we said hyperthermia raises mac so that would be the answer where those other ones lower it
1: right and i think of that in terms of like you're in like a hyperdynamic state and because you're hyperdynamic you're going to need a bit more Right. So the fourth key point, which is probably the biggest one for today, is actually looking at the effects of volatile anesthetics on the different systems, organ systems, so CNS, cardiovascular system, system respiration system. So in general, um, what happens to mean arterial pressure with, with volatile agents, Jed?
0: So mean arterial pressure is definitely going to go down because they are vasodilators.
1: Right. What about heart rate?
0: It's interesting. Heart rate, I mean, we get a a tachycardic response to hypotension. And so to the extent that they are going to cause a decrease in uh, mean arterial pressure, they can cause some tachycardia, though I will say that in and of itself, if you controlled for that, I think they have relatively minimal effect on heart rate.
1: With the exception of one, which is dust. Yes, definitely. And this is so, another common because they're looking at compare contrast among the um, volatiles. So when you're studying them, it's important to kind of compare contrast and know when there are outliers. So if you go up really quickly and significantly on the desk, you can see tachycardia not and hypertension, not- yeah. actually. Right.
0: Yeah. So that's a great point that I didn't mention and, and I'm glad you did. Yes. So definitely the exception to both the m- immunotherapy pressure and the heart rate is, is a rapid increase in desflurine concentration could cause tachycardia and hypertension.
1: Yes. And so what about for uh, respiratory rate and tidal volume?
0: Um, that's a good question. I'm going to say that I'm not hundred percent sure.
1: Yeah. So it's it. I think of it kind of like rapid and shallow. So it's going to increase your respiratory rate and decrease t- tidal volume. So if you've ever done a volatile anesthetic induction in a kid, you kind of see this like rapid, shallow breathing. And even in adults, when you wake them up under anesthetic, you see that kind of rapid, shallow
0: breathing. Mm.
1: Um, and then what about cerebral blood flow?
0: So they are going, uh, so we think of them as pretty good for decreasing intracranial pressure because they will decrease the metabolic rate of oxygen used by the brain and have relatively minimal uh, effect on cerebral blood flow. So the net is a decrease in ICP.
1: Okay. So the next series of questions are on this key point about how they affect different organ systems, but also comparing ones like to each other. So which of the following findings would be considered normal in the EEG of an adult? A, decreased frequency during induction with halogenated anesthetics. B, decreased frequency in frontal areas with administration of nitrous oxide 50%. C, dominance of beta rhythm at 20 to 30 Hertz during the awake, relaxed state. E, electrical silence with administration of isofluorine 2.5 MAC. E, the presence of birth suppression during natural sleep.
0: So if you are not an EEG expert, and I certainly am not, Neither, um, yeah. then a lot of this may sound like mumbo jumbo. So you got to, you know, again, a lot of this is test taking. And I think one of the things that that um, Jillian, I know you're really good at and helping helping folks with, and I think our listeners should really make sure they don't forget is that when we go through all these, some of it is just thinking about test taking skill. And so if you don't know You don't want to spend a huge amount of time on it, but you also don't want to just skip it. So ask yourself, well, what do I know that might guide me toward a little bit better than a random guess? And so if you see 2.5 MAC, you should say to yourself, wow, that's a lot. It's a lot of isoflurane. And so I'm going to say that we already said it can decrease the cerebral metabolic rate. If you decrease it enough, man, it might even silence it. So I'm going to go with that, which is what I would say.
1: And I do find in, not always, but frequently my residents who are very smart, who like when I talk to them, know the answers, but that doesn't translate to the test. I find that they get very distracted by the things they don't know. And because they don't know it, they're like, oh, it's gotta be that because I don't know it rather than relying on what they do know. And so for this one, yeah, A, when you go off to sleep, you actually have an increase in EEG in the beginning, but like that kind of phase two, that what's the right phrase. When you go to sleep, you have that period of you know, what I'm talking about phase stage two, phase like two, stage two yeah. but like you kind of move around and like you actually increase your e. oh,
0: disinhibition. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and then for B, decreased frequency in the frontal areas with nitrous, it doesn't make sense that it's going to be localized to one part of the brain and not the other. I wouldn't know anything about beta rhythm and awake state. Um, and you're not going to see burst suppression during natural sleep, I don't think. Um, but yeah, I, I, isofluorin at a 2.5 MAC, that's a significant amount of anesthetic. So it makes sense that you would get electrical silence.
0: And I should just say that before, you know, I had said that um, they decrease the cerebral metabolic rate, inhaled anesthetics do, and have a relatively minimal impact on cerebral blood flow. I think that's true, though. I think they can and do a little bit increase exactly. cerebral blood flow. Right.
1: Yeah. Okay. So during spontaneous breathing, volatile anesthetics, A, increase tidal volume and decrease decrease respiratory rate, B, increase tidal volume and increase respiratory rate, C, decrease venti- uh, tidal volume and decrease respiratory rate, or D, decrease tidal volume and increase respiratory rate.
0: Yeah. And so as you said, they're going to decrease tidal volume and increase respiratory rate.
1: So that rapid shallow breathing. All right. Which volatile anesthetic decreases systemic vascular resistance? A, sevoflurane, B, isoflurane, C, desflurane, D, all of the above.
0: And they all do.
1: They all do, right. Which inhalational agent moderately increases cardiac output? A, seba B, isoflurane, C, Desflurane, D, nitrous oxide.
0: Yeah, interesting. So I think this is tricky because under the right circumstances, if you decrease SVR, you will increase cardiac output. Um, though, uh, obviously there's a lot of else that goes into that. And usually I don't think of SIVO, ISO, and DES as increasing cardiac output. Right. Um, nitrous oxide is what's left. And so while I actually, that was not something I normally think of, I'm going to guess that's the answer though. I can't explain it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I always think of nitrous as being like supporting blood pressure, Right. Whereas some of the others, you'll decrease the SBR and decrease your cardiac output a little bit. Um, So I guess to me, that's why I also thought it was really interesting that they normally these questions say volatile anesthetic, but they switch to inhalational agent because nitrous isn't a volatile, which is a bit of a clue. But I also think it's like that Sesame Street song. Do you remember Sesame Street? Like which one of these things isn't like the other? Yeah, boxes Of these, it's like the one thing that isn't like the other. So um, I'm trying to parse out. It made the most sense to me.
0: Yep. Makes sense.
1: An abrupt and large increase in the delivered concentration of which inhalational agent may produce a transient increase in systemic blood pressure and heart rate, A, Sevoflurane, B, isoflurane, C, desflurane, D, nitrous oxide.
0: Right. And we talked about this. It's going to be des.
1: At 1.0 MAC, isoflurane will decrease all of the following except A, cardiac output, B, myocardial contractility, C, stroke volume, D, systemic vascular resistance.
0: Right. So at a MAC, we know it will um, have some, the, the volatile insects have a little bit of um, uh, myocardial um, uh, depression. So it will a little bit decrease myocardial contractility, st- uh, therefore also stroke volume definitely will decrease SVR. So what's left is cardiac output. And um, again, I think what happens there is though you do get a little bit of a decrease in stroke volume, which should decrease cardiac output, you also get a decrease in SVR, which is going to bounce that out. So you have to just remember what goes into cardiac output and you'll probably have about a net even effect on cardiac output.
1: And that's exactly what the answer said. So compared with other volatile inhalational anesthetics, desflurane has which of the following characteristics? A, equipotency to isoflurane. B, greater extent of biotransformation than enflurane. C, less airway irritation than halothane. D lower blood gas solubility coefficient than n enflurane. E lower vapor pressure than isoflurane.
0: Right, and so I think we've been through a lot of these, and the answer is going to be D lower blood gas solubility coefficient than enflurane. Um, it does; it is significantly more, um, significantly less soluble, and so has a lower blood gas solubility coefficient.
1: And then. Which of the following drugs increases cerebral blood flow while decreasing cerebral metabolic rate? A, Atomidate. B, fentanyl, C, isoflurane, D, lidocaine, E, midazolam.
0: And we went over this as well, that uh, this is what the volatile anesthetics do and why they are good for, for example, intracranial surgery. And so C, isoflurane.
1: Okay. Which leads us to the metabolism of volatiles, which we don't really think of. At least I don't, right? I think about bring them in and bring them out. I don't really think about them getting metabolized the same way we think about the metabolism of say morphine or Presidex, right? So there are actually microsomal enzymes in both the liver and the kidney that do metabolize a certain percent of your volatile anesthetics um, so halothane was the most, it was 10 to 20% for halothane, which is probably why halothane was a little bit more involved with like halothane hepatitis than the others. Cause there was more metabolism there. It's much lower for the other ones, like 0.2% for isofluorine and almost zero for, is zero for nitrous. About 3% of the absorbed dose of sevoflurane is metabolized and it undergoes hepatic metabolism by cytochrome P450. So you can, have less or more metabolism based on if you're using drugs that affect the P450 system. And uh, you can get an inorganic fluoride in the metabolism that can be produced and that can be renal toxic, although that's a bit controversial. But when we talk about the metabolism of the volatiles, that's really what we worry the most about is this fluoride formation causing renal toxicity. And then in addition, in seboflurane, when you use that in a circle system, Um, you actually produce a number of compounds. There's compounds A, B, C, and D, they've all been identified. Um, But the concern around compound A was that in rats, if they had a certain exposure over a certain amount of time, they actually had a, like a nephrotoxic syndrome. And there was worry that that might extrapolate over to humans. Although I would say the most recent literature doesn't, doesn't support that, but that was a big concern uh, that compound A might cause um, nephrotoxicity in humans, so. and they still ask these questions, so that's why we're talking about it. So here's one type of question you'll see: Is factors predisposing to formation and/or rebreathing of compound A include each of the following except a a low fresh gas flow? B, use of calcium hydroxide lime rather than soda lime. C, high absorbent temperatures. D, fresh absorbent. And again, it's another accept question, but you know these are older questions. So I actually do it a little different than you. I just kind of make them true false. And, but, does this
0: and, or does it not?
1: Yeah, right, yeah. exactly.
0: Yeah, and so as you you went over these, but so the answer is gonna be B, um, calcium hydroxide lime rather than soda lime isn't going to, um, is it not going to be uh, a factor in there because they both can do it, I believe, right? Um, right. But uh, the others are actually, at least we now, as you said, we have some question about this, but the prior belief was that all of those other ones, including low fresh gas flow, did lead to more compounding. Right, exactly.
1: All right, a 73-year-old woman with a preoperative serum creatinine of 2.1 develops oliguria during n anesthesia. Urine sodium concentration is 10 milliequivalents per liter, and urine osmolality is 450 milliosmoles per liter. The most likely cause of these findings is A, acute renal failure, B, chronic renal insufficiency, C, decreased renal perfusion, D, fluoride nephrotoxicity, and E, interoperative amenability administration of furosamine.
0: Yeah. So uh, they, they like to try to make sure, you know, that our volatile anesthetics don't tend to hurt organs, right. <laughs> <But> <laughs> at not least not or, directly. Not,
1: right, exactly.
0: Yeah. And so what they're giving you a picture of is a pre-renal picture. And so decreased renal perfusion.
1: And again, it's an older question, but you do see, see them from time to time about do volatile anesthetics cause um, fluoride nephrotoxicity. Uh, so the, there's, a, there, we have two more in this category. So following n anesthesia, serum-free fluoride concentration is most likely to be increased in association with long-term use of A, diazepam, B, ethanol, C, oh, I can't say it. It's I-N-H, D, I phenobarb- I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks. D phenobarbital, and E, phenytoin.
0: Um, yeah, great. So, um, Interesting question. Uh, after n fluorine anesthesia, free fluoride is going to be increased with long-term use of one of these. And I'll be honest, this is not something that I, I would have known, but I think the answer is isoniazid. Um, I'm sure it somehow affects the um, processing or excretion of that free fluoride, but I mean, again, It
1: um, affects the P450 system, right? It's one that INH, if you're on it a long time, it can ramp up your P450 system. So you're going to have more metabolism than normal. And so you can have uh, increased- serum free fluoride concentration. Mm, so again, it's okay. more out of the box, but they are still testing, so. All right, the Sounds highest cool. serum fluoride levels are seen following the administration of which of the following volatile anesthetics? A, desflurane, B, inflorane, C, halothane, D, isofluorane, E, Sevoflurane.
0: And as you said up front, uh, sevoflurane is gonna give you the, uh, the right. most here.
1: About 3% of all of them, yeah, exactly. Okay, so key point mm-hmm. six, which is our last key point for this podcast, is trace concentrations. So this is what OSHA allows in terms of like minimal amounts. And I'm not gonna give them to you because they would just give away the test (laughs) question. Unfortunately, this is one of those things that you just have to memorize. You can't intuit, you can't (laughs) just figure it out. You have to know it. So the highest trace concentration of nitrous allowed in the operating room atmosphere is A, one part per million, B, five parts per million, C, 25 parts per million, and D is 50 parts per million.
0: Yeah. And so I don't know this. And so what I would do again, test taking approach is, and this is not guaranteed that this would work, but I think if I had to, I'd say I'm not going to pick the extremes. So I'll pick one of the middle. So either five or 25. And I think the answer is going to be 25.
1: Yeah, it's C. And just statistically, C is more often correct than other answers. So if you really just had a flat out guess, I would recommend guessing C, which is not going to work in the next one. But <laughs> so, the next one is the highest concentration of volatile anesthetic contamination in the OR atmosphere when administered in conjunction with nitrous is A, 0.5 parts per million, B, 2 parts per million, C, 5 parts per million, and D is 25 parts per million.
0: Right. And so as you said, here it does break that rule. It is going to be one of the two extremes and here right. the lowest extreme. And I guess if you are going to have low extremes, it's probably when it comes to safety stuff right. where it's going to be the lowest. Yeah. So point
1: point five. Yeah. And I have seen these these have come up, I think, in the IT in the past few years. So it's one of those things that if you can just put it in your memory bank, it will give you a quick correct answer. Yeah. All right. So the last question is the greatest source for contamination of the OR atmosphere is leakage of volatile anesthetics, A, around the anesthesia mask, B, at the vaporizer, C, at the CO2 absorber, or D, at the endotracheal tube.
0: And this should be pretty obviously around the mask. That's going to be where you're going to get much more leak than any of those other things. Though, of course, this does assume you are masking with volatile anesthetic, because if you aren't, you're not going to get any leak of volatile anesthetic
1: which I think impedes you probably get a lot more ore contamination because you're doing all those.
0: Inhaled masks. inductions.
1: Don't do as yeah. much. And I'm not the type. I know there are a fair number of attendees who do it after IV induction will turn on the volatile agent and mask with it on. I'm not one of them, but.
0: Yeah, I actually do like to do that. But, um, you know, uh, I think either way, I I, what I tell residents is it doesn't matter to me if you if if you don't do it, you just have to remember that depending on how long you mask for, you may need to redose your propofol um, because you haven't been giving anything. Um, Well, Jillian, this has been great. Thank you very much. Why don't we turn to the portion of our show where we make a random recommendation? You've always got great, interesting, Uh, fun ones. (laughs) What do you have for our audience today?
1: So I just finished a book that was phenomenal and a very unknown story. It's called A Woman of No Importance. And it is the story of Virginia Hall. So my dad, he's not listening, but he was a a lifetime CIA guy. When he retired, he was director of counterintelligence. Um, And I texted him, I was like, have you heard the story? And he's like, no. And they said, yes, there's actually like an entire wing in the CIA museum dedicated to Virginia Hall. So Virginia Hall is an American who was living overseas when World War II started. She's actually originally from Baltimore which is how I heard the story. She was the most uh, fundamentally important spy in France during World War II against the Germans. And she was the Germans number one, like sought after spy and enemy in France during World War II, because she organized all these networks of resistant fighters. And would radio back to England when it was very dangerous to radio back because the Germans would get the frequency. So she would radio back to England and coordinate all these drops of like money and materials. And she would organize these resistance fighters to like bomb um, factories that were building German supplies or bomb the railways that were going to move German troops. It's a great story and just one that's really unknown. She never um, wanted to talk about it or take credit for it because she always thought that her life would be in danger. Like she was so sought after by the Germans that she thought even up until she died, that they were still going to try and come get her. Uh, But now that she passed away a few years ago, her story is getting out there.
0: Wow. That's fascinating. It's called a woman of no no, consequence,
1: no importance
0: of no importance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And she was actually one of the very first women to be hired by the CIA after she came back to the States following her time in the war. Um, She was actually hired to be a CIA agent.
0: Wow, well, that's fascinating. I'll definitely have to check it out. You know, I just finished watching The Americans, all six seasons, and and I didn't. And now I'm I'm thinking your dad like had a prominent role in there. His uh his <laughs> not him himself, but his his uh job anyway.
1: Uh, you know, I know very little of what my dad did. He doesn't talk about it like at all ever. I know he helped negotiate START, which was the strategic arms reduction treaty, and ABM, the anti ballistic missile treaty, just because he has mugs with like those things on them. nice. And uh, it's funny, like I have a bunch of siblings, but the only thing that all of us want for my dad (laughs) is a collection of (laughs) mugs.
0: That's awesome. Um, Well, very cool. Uh, I am going to take a little different tack. I've actually been trying to learn to get a little better at chess. I've always kind of known how chess works, but never been any good at it. And so I downloaded this app. Yeah, no. So so we just started that. Actually, my wife and I watched the first episode last night. I know a ton of people are watching it. So if you're interested in actually learning chess, um, and you don't want to, I don't know, I'm sure you could kind of go to an academy or something. But if you don't have time for that, the chess.com app is actually really great. It is You can get it for free, but you can't do a lot of lessons and stuff unless you pay, but it's not that expensive. I don't know. It's like a couple bucks a month maybe, and you get um, access to a lot of really good, well done lessons. They break things down. You can kind of see play against a computer and then get hints on what you should do, and then you can kind of think through what they'll tell you what the best move would have been. So I'm still bad, but I, I feel like I'm getting better, and this app is helping a lot. So if you're interested in improving your own chess and you can't picture it on the ceiling, the way she does in Queens gamut, then dot uh, chess.com app is a pretty good way to go. And, and no, I do not get any money or endorsement from chess.com. <laughs> yeah. it's All funny,
1: right, Jillian, because I just started learning chess this year. as was like a COVID hobby. Oh, but my nice. eight-year-old's been playing for a couple of years and he can just walk me. It's just so awful. It's like,
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's I'm sure not long till my kids can do the same. Um, well, Jillian, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: No problem. Good seeing See you. Again. you Take care. All right.
0: All right. Another great keywords episode. Hopefully that was useful. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website akrak.com. You can leave a comment and others can learn from what you have to say. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw and we're at Akrak Podcast and you can join the Facebook group as well. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash akrak. That's patreo com slash a-c-c-r-a-c where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make a donation anytime by looking for me, Jay Walpaw, on Venmo or going to paypal.me slash We really appreciate it, thanks to those who are already patrons that have already made donations. Big thank you, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, our tech lead to Dr. Kimia Kashkuli, who is still involved in making some outlines for the episodes, and, of course, to our media manager, April Liu, who does a fantastic job with the Facebook group and Twitter and many other things. Thank you, April. All right. Big thanks, as always, to Dr. Dennis Quo, who is the composer of our original ACRAG music. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, folks, thank you so much. That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Jillian Isaac, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.